This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. What's a nice environmental scientist doing on a board like ExxonMobil's? Tune into my chat with Kaisa Hietala to find out. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Rob Cox, the global editor of Breaking Views, a financial commentary arm of Reuters, and I'm coming to you from New York City. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Kaisa Hietala as part of the Reuters Next conference. She's one of the directors who landed on the board of ExxonMobil, the $250 billion hydrocarbons heavyweight, as part of activist engine number one's successful fight to green the Texas company's board up. Hietala isn't really an activist, per se. She's an environmental scientist and geophysicist from Finland who spent 20 years at Neste, most recently running its renewable refining division. While she declined to go into details of the Exxon board's deliberations, she broadly outlined her vision for how energy companies like Exxon can be run sustainably and in the interest of shareholders. She should know, over the past five years, her former employer saw its stock price surge more than threefold from 12 to 43 euros as it embraced newer, cleaner fuel technologies. By contrast, Exxon shares have slumped to $32 from 59 bucks during the same period. Anyway, give a listen to my chat recorded earlier this month with the environmental scientist on Exxon's board. Good morning, everybody out there. I'm Rob Cox. Uh, I'm the editor of Breaking Views. I'm coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. And I'm really delighted to have Kaisa Heitela on Reuters Next with me today. Good morning, Kaisa. How are you? Good morning, Rob. I'm very good. Where do I find you? are not in your usual Finland. You're in somewhere else. Indeed. I'm in Dublin this morning. Ah, okay. Well, top of the morning to you. Look, let's just get right into it. The big question I have, and I suppose it's a variation on an old pickup line, which is, what's a nice environmental scientist doing on a board like ExxonMobil? <laughs> Let me tell you a, a short story. I'm a geophysicist and an, an environmental scientist by training. When I was a, a student, I felt I didn't find the right way to make an impact. I just didn't find the, the, the way how the NGOs were behaving and so on to be uh, suitable for me. After my studies, I decided to join the industry, the oil and gas industry. I, I wanted to start to make change within insight. And here we are, almost 22 years after I have had a great opportunity to help this industry to move towards um, more renewable energy and uh, introduce renewable products to the market, and also um, maybe to change the whole thinking about the the industry a little bit. So I'm very pleased uh, to have so you work. Yes, no, I think that's that's a fantastic way to frame it. Someone working from within. And of course, you're now on the board of you know what is uh, the world's largest private oil and gas producer. But let's just step back a little bit to your to your how you got there. Now we know that you were. You were there as part of the engine number one proxy slate that came out earlier this year. But I, but I want to even step back further. You mentioned, you know, your, your experience before. You worked at Neste, which was 
has been one of the best performing energy companies in the world over the past decade. But I, you know, I'd love to hear like the lessons that you learned there before we sort of, I ask you how we apply them to companies like ExxonMobil, but other uh, businesses in the hydrocarbons industry. How did, you know, what was your experience at Neste? What did you learn and that, that could be applicable to the rest of the world? Well, Rob, I mean, there are so many things. We could discuss about the, how you embrace innovation or how you develop new clean tech, sort of a technological solutions, or how do you introduce value sales to a commodity markets. Let me highlight the three things which, which are a bit more strategic and which I think are very important if, if you consider the, this question from the board and the top management perspective. And the first thing is that the companies should have a courage to look look to the future. Even though they might not like what they see, but they still should have the courage to understand that there are different alternatives that might take place in the future. Um, secondly, I think the, uh, those companies who have been successfully transforming towards, the, let's say, renewable energy or, or renewable products, uh, they have incorporated sustainability into their strategy. That's the second lesson. Uh, I learned. I mean, sustainability many times it's considered as a function, which is all about reporting and uh, sort of a branding and marketing. But for me, sustainability in the future is all about the business. So those companies who have been really successful, they have they have considered sustainability as a strategic sort of value for them. And then thirdly, I would like to emphasize the importance of the employees companies should really invite the employees to join the journey. I mean, sustainability as a purpose, it's very powerful. It's very energizing and it really gives people the, the motivation to work for your company. So uh, those three things I would say I learned during the Nesta years, among and, many uh, others. <laughs> of course, Nesta is a very uh, progressive company in that respect. And Finland is, you could argue, a more progressive on its approach to sustainability than, say, Texas or the United States, where ExxonMobil is based. Um, but, and you ran the Renewable Refining Division, of course, which, which is a, it's an, a fascinating idea, renewable refining. I mean, I find the whole concept of the mind shift that needs to go on for companies that are in this business. How do you transfer that? How, what has been the experience since you've gone over and met folks at, at Exxon? And, and, and how, how much different is it than a European company? will be to try to get that mindset shifted? I would say that every player in the oil and gas industry is struggling with the same topics. No matter whether the company is, is located or the headquarters is located in Finland or, or in Texas, um, I think it, it's more about the, what capabilities the company has to develop the future solutions and how can they utilize these capabilities for better future, basically. Yeah. Now, let's just step back. How did you get involved with... Now, Engine Number 1 was an activist group, a, you know, a fund manager that pushed forward a proxy, which included you, uh, for the director directorship. How did you get involved with those guys in the first place? I was contacted by a headhunter who was working for Engine Number 1. Um, Engine Number 1 was looking for a special set of skills and experiences among the energy industry. 
um, a sort of a complementary set of skills. I was introduced to engine number one by the headhunter. And what was your first response when someone said to you, hey, would you be interested in getting on the Exxon mobile board or putting yourself, what was your first response internally or externally? Well, I said, very interesting. That was sort of my, my sort of first uh, response. Oh. I mean, uh, uh, of course, they were introducing, introducing the project to me. And uh, then the discussions evolved from there. My response was that very interesting, mm, indeed. And, and how do you see it? I'm just curious how you see that role. At, I mean, a, you're the director of a, of a public, one of the largest publicly traded companies, uh, certainly in the United States and certainly in the oil and gas business that's not controlled by a government. I mean, how do you see the, the different stakeholders and how do you bring them to the, to the fore when you're at a board meeting or speaking to other directors? I have been a director for six years now uh, with, with other companies and so on. So I'm pretty familiar with the work or, or with the way how boards operate. And I, wouldn't, I would say that my role as a director is, is, is no different from the, from, from the other directors. I mean, we are there to, to protect the shareholders' interest. And the way how, how boards operate and the way um, as a director, how I operate, I think it's uh, pretty similar um, in, in all companies who uh, listed companies who have boards. It boils down to supporting, but also challenging the management to come up with the right strategies. I mean, my, my perspective um, is definitely um, focusing on the long-term strategy. That's sort of um, my asset or, or my sort of interest. And, and uh, the board plays a very important role in um, when the company is developing future strategy. I know that you, you have a view, which uh, I think is right, which is that sustainable business is good business. And, and, and the idea, if you're not sustainable, long if your business isn't sustainable, then it's just bad business. It's so, and you're in the business of business. So you are there to have a bottom line that's robust and employees that are paid well and all of that. I mean, how, if I take, take that, it pulled the camera back a little bit and think about you know, what is it that the that investors are getting right and wrong about the shift away from fossil fuels like wh whether it's so you saw it firsthand at neste and the stock quadrupled over a period of time they obviously you were pretty happy with their response there i'm sure but i mean do you do you think that the the investors are getting this shift right are they playing are they are, are, are they because it, it's sometimes to me, I look at the stock prices and I don't think that there's, a, there's much punishment that's going on out there for companies that haven't dramatically shifted in the way that Neste did. But there also seems to be rewards, I suppose. Well, I mean, how do you think? Do you think investors in the market are getting this correctly? Um, you know, um, it was a couple of years ago when um, I heard for the first time um, an investor asking me that show me the money. I was, I was, uh, I was still being um, um, the EVP for Neste, and um, uh, that was the early years of the of the Neste's great success with uh, with renewable products. And uh, I felt that wow, that was an interesting question. I mean, we are talking about sustainability here, and uh, the investor is is very bluntly telling me that show me the money. And uh, now later on, I think that was exactly the right question. Um, so I'm, uh, I think the investors are doing the right thing when they are challenging 
industries or businesses and com companies to really um, start to look at uh, this type of a transformational things like sustainability is nowadays, whether it's a climate change or, or the potential of circular economy or potential the, the, the biodiversity loss uh, solutions and so on. Um, I think uh, when, they are, when they are challenging the companies and saying that you need to develop totally new thinking around the business models or the earning logic and so on, I think that's the part which the investors are getting right. They, they are putting the, the pressure on the, on the shoulders of, of corporations and um, basically um, asking the corporations to rethink their, their, their traditional businesses when they are introducing the, the sort of a new solutions. You see a lot of, I mean, Neste was one that, it was a smaller scale, of course, than an ExxonMobil, um, but you certainly see Shell, you see uh, BP, I suppose more of the European or UK energy companies have kind of moved, or Total, have moved more into things like renewables. And things like, the US hasn't, the US oil companies for the most part, oil majors haven't, haven't done that. Do you think, I mean, again, not speaking just for Exxon, but do you think that that's a, there is a sort of mindset that's a sort of cultural shift that's, that differentiates the Europeans from the Americans? Or is there, is it sort of, there's an American approach, which is that the market's not actually forcing them to do it. And it's not actually rewarding BP and Shell and others. Is that what's, I mean, or do you think it's just going to be a slower progression towards that kind of a shift in the business model? Well, I don't think I'm, I'm the right person to make that analysis, but um, um, I see that different companies within the industry, they are developing different strategies for the future because they have different capabilities. Um, and those capabilities have been sort of borne by, by their scale or their sort of operational expertise or by the fact how much R&D and science they are doing or whether they are being, being sort of a fully integrated companies or just focusing on refining or just focusing on refining and retail and marketing and so on. So um, I think the interesting concept here is that how is the future oil and gas industry going to look like? And is it going to be the same for all? Or are we starting to see some companies differentiating um, in a slightly sort of a different way than others? And, and uh, whether renewable energy is part of that change or part of that transition, or whether it's more focusing on, let's say, the uh, uh, um, hydrocarbons uh, or, or sort of a carbon management business or... or so, so I think uh, um, this transition can potentially, it, it can create a totally new businesses, totally new industries, which we don't see yet. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that's one of the, the, the interesting things to say is focus what you're good at, right? Focus on what you're good at. And, and, I, and I, it is sort of interesting to see that the way investors haven't yet decided that one approach, say the European one is better than the American one to, to this. So, so I suppose the jury is still out on that. Um, one of the things that came out this week uh, was that Exxon said it was on track to meet its 2025 uh, carbon emissions targets ahead of schedule, um, which sort of raised the question was, they must not have been very um, ambitious if they have already reached their 2025 and 2021. Um, what, what do you say about the idea that, uh, I mean, 
I mean, I think, in fact, one of my colleagues wrote a column that said, ah, the, the, the new directors, meaning you uh, and others, um, you have low hanging fruit in the sense that if, if they weren't that ambitious with their targets, then there's a lot more that can be done. I mean, what do you say to that criticism that ExxonMobil might not have been uh, so ambitious in its, uh, and this is scope one emissions targets. I mean, many people are asking me a lot about the, the discussions which are taking place in the boardroom. And, and unfortunately, I, I know that uh, people are very curious about it, but, but as a board member, um, as a director, it is, it, I, I'm not the one who is commenting on those. So I leave it to the, to the management of the company. Um, but uh, I, I think still fundamentally, the, the key topic uh, uh, I, here is, is something we already discussed, is that how are the companies going to reposition themselves for the future? I mean, this is going to be a long journey. Uh, Nesta spent uh, 16 years to build the renewable products business. Uh, it was in 2006 when I was introducing the, the idea to the board of, of directors of Neste. Um, and uh, it took, took many, many years to, to build that. So uh, I think it's a very important that the, all the companies within this industry, that they start to look into the future and they, they start to take steps and they start to think about that, okay, what type of a role do I want to play in the future? Because they need to, they need to start to get prepared. They need to start the repositioning. And uh, uh, there I see that the um, companies will be having different uh, alternatives and they will be selecting different routes, how to go forward. Um, so uh, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be very, very interesting times for the whole industry. Yeah, when I was at the uh, COP26 in Glasgow, I know you and I spoke around that time, maybe I was calling you frantically from some windowless conference from there to get to talk about this conversation. But, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion there uh, about phasing out fossil fuel subsidies around the world. Um, now, it didn't quite go. I'm not sure it didn't quite go to where uh, people had hoped, environmentalists say, had hoped that it would go, um, and not least because India and China and some other nations were, were able to water down those views. But how do you, what is the, what is, this is sort of your perspective, Kaisa Hietala's perspective on um, energy subsidies and what governments need to be doing to kind of help companies like ExxonMobil or Neste or indeed uh, to move towards the transition? Like what, what should policy be doing? What we are talking about here is uh, systemic change. I mean, we all know that uh, uh, today, if you, if you decide to go for a holiday somewhere and you want to rent a car, you know how that car operates and you know that uh, you, you can basically go to a fuel station and, and, uh, and uh, um, fill up your tank and, and then uh, drive around the country if that is what you like. In the future, there might not be only one solution, a global solution. And uh, that requires uh, quite a lot also from the policymakers. Uh, we are not just uh, switching from, from one fuel to another fuel, which is more green and, and uh, less carbon uh, emitting and, and so on, uh, and, and doing that globally. No, we will be introducing to the society uh, different solutions. 
uh, starting from uh, solutions for transportation or solutions for industry, solutions how to capture CO2 if, uh, if there is no uh, zero emission uh, solution otherwise provided. Um, and this change will go through all societies and through all levels of, of societies. And this is a systemic change. And therefore the policymakers, they need to stop thinking sort of, let's make incremental changes to our policies. They really need to start to think about that, okay, how is the future going to look like? Um, I think they should be much more agile than today. I mean, uh, I'm following, for example, the European Union taxonomy discussion pretty closely. And uh, if it takes five to seven years to change some of the details introduced by that policy, I mean, uh, we won't have that time. So agility, uh, also a holistic approach, uh, a systemic approach, and then the uh, sort of a dialogue with the industries, dialogue with all the um, um, stakeholders to understand that, okay, uh, what is, what is there, um, what are the solutions that could be developed, but also what are the solutions that the consumers would like to have? So, so I think the policymakers are playing a very, very important role here. And uh, as this transition is, is going to be a massive one, um, I just don't think that the policymakers can continue the way as they have done so far. They is, also need to need to sort of transform and 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 think about that. Um, how does a future policymaker work? I mean, one of the the issues is you you want we, people talk about a transition, the energy transition, but there's also this other question about the just transition. So um, if you decide to reduce subsidies in one area that does it hurt one segment of the population that may be poor. I mean, I give an example is the Gilets Jaunes and that whole movement in, in France was essentially about um, punishing people with diesel engines and, and, uh, and they, that became a real problem. It, was a, it, it, it really showed you how difficult this transition can be if we don't get it right. Do you, um, do you, how do you see that sort of just and social part of your role as a director at, at ExxonMobil? I think it boils down to um, having uh, as many solutions as possible. Some of them today are more expensive than the existing solutions, but some of them with, with the right policy support could be affordable already today. And, and the industry has seen that, for example, uh, solar and wind energy is already, at least in some parts of the world, it's already um, cheaper. Than, than the traditional energy. So uh, um, I think it boils down to the fact that uh, there is no one solution any longer in the future. And the companies who are uh, operating in this, in, within this sector, they need to have the ability to provide uh, different solutions. And, and therefore, I, I truly believe that the big players um, of this industry, I mean, with their scale, with their capabilities, with their expertise, they are in a good position to, to develop wide range of, of solutions. And when you think about uh, this, this acronym or initialism, ESG for environmental social governance sort of become a blanket, lumped all these things under one basket, if you, in one basket. When you go in as a director at ExxonMobil, and you know that the sort of, the, the, the movement that brought you there was certainly 
powered by this ES, this desire for, for a greater ESG perspective on the board. How do you weigh the E versus the S versus the G? Well, let me first emphasize that the, one of the reasons why I decided to join the Engine Number One campaign was that it was not purely ESG campaign. And I, I know some people are pretty upset <laughs> by me saying this, but, but I feel that the ESG um, without the link to business, uh, I, I, I just don't believe that's the future because ESG is the future, but then the business should be really driving that. And, and for business and for investors to be able to drive that, they need to see the profits. They need to see that sustainable business is a good business. So, uh, um, so uh, for me, that was one of the reasons why I felt the engine number one uh, campaign was uh, it was well designed because they had these two elements hand in hand. And uh, of course, we do need to remember that it was the investors, the owners, who eventually were the ones who who voted for for this um, for this campaign. Um, but the ES, E and S and G. Um, currently, I see that the E has been having the most sort of a prominent role because the climate change, the sort of a longer history of, of especially in the Nordic countries, the, the longer history of, uh, of environmental topics and so on. The S is now definitely uh, becoming a, a very important, a very critical. And those topics which you highlighted, um, they are extremely complex and extremely difficult. And again, they are linked to the whole systemic change, which we are talking here. And they're hard and, to measure. They're not that exactly. obvious. You can't put a return on in capital exactly. on something, which you can yeah. do for environmental yeah. in many cases. Yeah. And like, like with many other things uh, uh, regarding this uh, transition or transformation which we are going through, uh, we don't have the, the, the perfect answers today. But still, I feel that it should not stop us. Uh, having the dialogue and, and moving forward and asking the right questions and, and developing the, the answers as we move. So uh, uh, indeed, uh, I think the letter E has had more emphasis uh, in the past, but now the, these letters ESG are becoming more and more equal. But as said, uh, perfect answers, I don't think we have those yet. No. Um, so, uh what do you have you had to get yourself up to speed in ways that you had never imagined on things like American politics? I mean, because one of the things that came out of COP, for instance, was this sort of idea that, oh gosh, wait, like last time around, Donald Trump was president and he poo pooed all of this stuff and pulled the, uh, the US out of the Paris Agreement. Now there's, you know, if you look at Biden's poll numbers, it's quite, they're quite low. There's a whole idea. How, what, how do you see? American policy or government um, or elections moving one way or the other what Exxon Mobil or any American oil company does? Does it have any bearing on the way you, you guys look at the world? Well, I have tried to stay out from, from the political Good discussion. Idea. I, I'm, not, I'm not the political <laughs> person at all myself and uh, uh, I'm sort of a science-based person. Um, but uh, I think that if the... Um, if the companies and if industries, not only energy industry, but the wider spectrum of industries who, who will be uh, tackling the, the future challenges 
we, we will be facing. If, if these uh, industry, industries can, can develop solutions for the policymakers to consider, um, I hope the, uh, the sort of the, um, there, there will be a willingness to, to work together and, and push those solutions forward and, and help the societies to move forward and, and so on. Um, I have to say that the uh, political situation, I'm, I'm more familiar with the European political situation mm -hmm. myself, but the political situation uh, and the sort of a volatility related to that, of course, uh, it would be much more easier for businesses to operate uh, if, if, if there the was more stability, more could, clarity. Yeah, if it's, if it's yeah. more predictable and more stable. I mean, every business would probably appreciate that. Uh, but uh, the situation is what it is, and uh, but what but the the thing is that climate change doesn't recognize country borders, no. and and doesn't sort of uh, uh, appreciate <laughs> different different nationalities. Political parties don't really matter political. to them. Yes, to the, exactly. Right, before so we close, the only solution but, is to go forward. Yeah, just to very quickly, we have like two minutes left. Um, a couple of audience questions I'll throw them to you. When will Exxon? set scope three emissions targets? That's one question. Um, yeah, yeah, very good question. But unfortunately, um, as a director, I won't be. Uh, I figured that was not one you'll let that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, here's an interesting, what role can national oil companies play? And that's, and I think that means that the likes of a Saudi Aramco play in the, in the fossil energy transition together with publicly traded or, pr or privately owned oil companies such as ExxonMobil. Is there, are you gonna be at, in, at odds with them because the, you know, they don't have the same pressures that you have or do you think there's a way that you all work together? Well, I think if, if, uh, if they are reading the future the same way as a private uh, industry players, they should be moving as well. I mean, hmm. uh, if, if somebody thinks that the, the climate change won't be um, relevant to them because they are a national oil or energy company. Uh, I think they, they are missing the point, <laughs> to be honest. So, so uh, yeah, I believe, I believe everybody in this industry is paying attention to, to these topics today. Okay, well, look, Kaiser, it was great. Thank you very much for dialing in from Dublin today and look forward to seeing what you do um, as in your directorship role at ExxonMobil over the years. And thank you uh, to everyone who tuned in for this fascinating conversation. Thank you, Rob. It was nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Thomas Shum, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views, from on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you go to get your high-quality podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And Happy New Year. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.